0: To Hebrews chapter 3, as we uh, continue in our series in uh, the book of Hebrews. This morning we will look just at the first uh, six verses of chapter 3. If you would, uh, let let me ask that you stand if you're able uh, as we read God's word together. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to uh, your word, uh, we pray that you would open our minds to understand, our ears to hear, our eyes to see, our hearts to embrace Christ. Uh, For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I suppose, and I'm really, I'm, I'm realizing now Now that I'm standing here, I'm realizing that I am way down the list on people qualified to even enter into this conversation. And so now I'm kind of regretting using this illustration. However, if you were to ask, I don't know, 100 people, 1,000 people, who the greatest Yankees, New York Yankees baseball player ever. Like, who's the greatest Yankee ever to wear the uniform? And see, this is where I, I just don't. Now, my guess is that the far and away winner of that debate would be Babe Ruth. Now, it's it's also entirely possible that people like Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, maybe even somebody recent like a Derek Jeter would get at least a vote or two or somewhere along the way. Um. But the reality is that none of those guys ever had their names associated with a stadium, right? Um, You know the story, the old Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built. Um, Okay, he literally didn't go out there and build the house. You do realize this, right? Uh, At the time, uh, the Red Sox had traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees, mistake number one. The Yankees were sharing a stadium with the football team, the New York Giants, And they were bringing in more money, more people than the Giants were. And the Giants didn't like it. And they said, you have to leave. And so they said, okay, no problem. We'll build a stadium right across the river within sight of your stadium. And in their first game in their new stadium, opening day of baseball, more than 74,000 people, and this is in the 20s, came to see the Yankees play baseball. Which, by the way, the record for a major league, major league Baseball game, humor me, up to that point had been just over 40,000. There's 30,000 more people came to that game than had ever been to a pro game before, baseball game before. Now, here's my question. Who was the pitcher? Who was the winning pitcher for the Yankees? You don't know. I'd be shocked if you knew. Who scored the first run for the Yankees? I bet you don't know that either because it's actually the same answer as the first question. He was also the pitcher. But what we all know is that Babe Ruth hit a three-run home run and immediately that stadium became known as the house that Ruth built. It It was his presence, it was his reality that led to the need for that stadium that led to the, the building and, and growth and expansion of that stadium and that that earned him, earned that stadium that moniker, that name, the house that Ruth built. In some ways, we have in this passage sort of a, a compare and contrast between two humor me, two significant People in the history of the Bible, in the church, and there is two names that have sort of made their way to the forefront, and there becomes this conversation, this debate about which is the greater. That is where the the, the first recipients of this letter are, and so it shows us that um, that Jesus is the builder of a different house. Uh, Notice first the the contrast. The builders themselves, you know, anytime you have a anytime you have a who's the greatest ever conversation, you know, you can't do this, right? You see this all the time with the the LeBron-Jordan conversation, right? They they played in different eras, there were different people. I mean, it's just a completely different question. You can't have that conversation. Because what people will do is they will roll out stats. Well, this guy hit more home runs. Yeah, well, this guy had more stolen bases. This guy hit um, you know, I had a higher uh, batting average. Yeah, but this guy, you know, play was the only decent player on his team. Right? You, you roll out whatever stat you want to roll out to defend the name you want to defend. You sort of make the argument for your guy. In many ways, that's kind of what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. Is he's he's sort of weighing, all right, you audience, you are you're wanting to kind of go back to the old law to the old covenant you're wanting to go back to the the sacrificial system and and the temple and the old jewish ways of of worship and and let me now hold before you your guy Moses and and our guy Jesus and so he he makes this contrast now keep in mind and this becomes perfectly clear in the next chapter which we'll see in the next week or two lord willing but this is not just see when you and i enter into a who's the greatest debate it's just our own opinions we're not reading merely the opinions of the writer of hebrews whoever that is we don't even know remember this is god's word this is this is God speaking to his people. This is God communicating to his people. And that matters. That means we're getting not your opinion and my opinion and we can weigh them and then we can throw them away and go get coffee because neither one of them matter for anything. This is, this is the truth of God's word. This is God making clear to us that ultimately Jesus is indeed greater than Moses. The writer is writing exactly what the spirit wants him to write. He's writing to to Jewish converts. They're 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 Jewish in their background. They've come to saving faith in Christ. And so now they really kind of feel like they have no home. We can't go to the temple. We're not welcomed there. Don't really want to go. But at the same time, they're now being persecuted from family, from friends, from co-workers, From all sorts of angles now for their leaving Judaism and for their embracing Jesus. Now they're sort of getting the double whammy. At least the Gentiles are just embracing Jesus and that's kind of that. And so there's this. This urge. This um, temptation to go back to their old ways to go back to the law of Moses to turn back to what they had known before to turn back if we're honest to that which is a little more tangible, visible, right? I mean, you think about our worship versus walking into the temple with an animal. I mean, it's a very real, visible, tangible participation in this sacrificial system. And so these... These saints are, have left that behind. And Moses. Notice Moses is still counted faithful. What we read in our Old Testament reading just a few minutes ago. Actually we're told twice in this passage. Both in verse 2 and in verse 5. That Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant and and despite the fact that those closest to him wanted to rebel against him his own brother his own sister wanted to i mean come on moses really we just need to rebel against this guy and and it was despite that conflict despite that persecution moses remained faithful but verse 6 christ is faithful Two. Both are are deemed or counted faithful. But doesn't that raise a question? How would you and, and we describe people as faithful? But what do we mean? Can you be just, I don't know, nebulously faithful to some nebulous concept idea? I mean, is that a is that really a an adjective that we can use for someone? Or, or don't we really mean that they're faithful to something that you can't just be faithful like as an idea there's actually something you're faithful to there's got to be some measuring stick by which we call you faithful well that's what that's what we get in verse one right I mean jesus we're told was is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Verse 1. It's a unique combination of, of words. It actually only happens here. I guess that's the definition of unique, isn't it? Apostle is someone who sent. Uh, and in, in Bible language, an apostle is someone who is sent by God. And so they're sent to do something. They're sent to accomplish something. And so you can be faithful to that mission, to that for which you were sent. And that's exactly what Moses and Jesus have in common. Both were sent by God to do a thing. You remember this? I, mean, I realize, I mean, we just finished Exodus. And I realize most of us have short-term memories. And I realize it's been a year and change since we were in Exodus 3. But you know what happened. You remember the the commissioning service that happened next to to this bush on fire, right? There's a bush. It's on fire and yet not burning. And, And from that bush, God commissions Moses... To go back to Egypt and deliver his people from slavery, from bondage in Egypt, and and Moses asks the questions that everyone around would want to ask once he gets back. But 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 God, um, they're gonna ask who sent you, who apostled you. That remember the. The writer here is leaning on the 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 Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. That's the fancy word for Um, uh, that. The the Greek translation of the Old Testament and literally the word is apostle. Their question is going to be who apostled you and God's answer. Well, when you get there, you tell them I am apostled you. Now, they would have been using Hebrew, right? But it still works the same way. Moses was sent on a mission. And he has, despite all kinds of of efforts to rebel against him, he has remained faithful in that mission. Pharaoh didn't want to let him go. His own brother and sister tried to rebel against him. His own brother helped the people make a golden calf, right? You could line up all of the places where you and I would have said, I'm done. I'm so over these people. I'm so finished. This is a complete waste of time. And yet Moses is described both in numbers and here as faithful in all of God's house. Jesus was also sent. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was sent by the father to accomplish our deliverance, not from slavery in Egypt, but from bondage to sin. And so he was sent to accomplish that purpose. And and you read this in the gospels, right? John four, it's my food to do the will of him who sent me. John 6, the Father sent me. John 17, in the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, look, Father, you've sent me into the world, and like that, I'm sending them. Jesus understood his, that He was sent to accomplish our salvation. He's the apostle that we confess. He's the, the sent one in whom we put our faith and our trust but he's also the high priest. And now the, the writer of Hebrews is going to pick up on that later and spend a lot of time chapters on Christ as our high priest. And so he doesn't really develop it here at this point, but he does sort of take this notion that, that the apostle, the one sent from God to the people and the priest, the ones, the one who intercedes for the people to God you know, it just so happens there's one person in the Old Testament who served that role also. Moses. Moses was God's mouthpiece to the people, but he also interceded for the people to God until the, the, um, the, the sacrificial system and the, the priesthood was officially instated and given to Aaron and his descendants. In other words, the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that, yes, Moses was faithful and and as such is worthy of honor. But he's not worthy of the same kind of honor that Jesus is. Both were faithful to carry out their mission, except there's one significant difference. Let me show you verses 5 and 6. The prepositions. (coughs) Go back to English class. (coughs) Notice in verse 5. Moses was faithful in God's house. Christ is faithful over it. Moses belongs to the house. Jesus is over it and comes from outside of it. Moses is merely a man. Christ, verse 4, is God Himself. Moses is a servant. Jesus is the Son and the Heir, the one who inherits all from the Father. And so the son has greater honor than the servant. The builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. Jesus is greater than Moses. There's a make one sort of application here. That's not um, it's not too far off from one. I made several times when we were in Exodus. Um, And that is this Exodus isn't merely history. Exodus isn't just information about Israel way back then, and and we can treat it like we would a history textbook. It's got more connection that we don't throw it away just because Christ has come. Moses points us to Christ, and yet the people there are still God's people. In fact, they're called God's house. In verse five, Moses is a forerunner of Jesus delivering people from bondage. The difference is, and, and I'm going to make this one sentence and then save it for uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. The difference is this. Moses could take Israel out of Egypt, but he couldn't take Egypt out of Israel. That's going to be a big deal in weeks to come. Jesus is greater than Moses. But what about this house? What's this this house that keeps showing up over and over again in this passage? The writer brings up a house. Well, notice in verse 6, the writer says, "We are this house." Hey audience, hey congregation, Hey, recipients of this letter, you and I are the house that that we've been talking about, that that Jesus is building, that Jesus is faithful over, that Moses was faithful in. We are that house. It's people. It's not a building. The temple was still standing. Like this is written. I'm convinced this was written, this letter was written before 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. I think it's probably 62 to 65, sort of in that range. Um, the temple still stands. And, and these are Jewish audience. They house of God to them is that big giant stone structure over there. And the writer's reminding them that it's not a building. It's not a structure. It's not bricks. Um, it is people. People are the house. In fact, verse 1, they're called brothers. Therefore, holy brothers. The writer is calling them not only his brothers, but you're also brothers with each other. It kind of serves both purposes. They're holy brothers. They share in the heavenly calling. They're believers. These are people who have trusted in Christ and are looking to him and him alone for, this, for their salvation. The house that Jesus builds. The church. Moses. I mean, we literally like four weeks ago just finished this. Moses built a house. It was a temporary house. It was designed to be a temporary house, right? It wasn't. It wasn't brick. It wasn't stone. It was curtains, tents, animal skins, um, things like that. But it was a. It was a house. It was a a dwelling for God. And yet, Jesus builds a different kind of house. It's not a a brick and mortar structure. Um, It's not a big giant stone building. It's people. And the writer could call these Jewish Christians brothers. Because in Christ, they belong to the same house. They belong to the same household. They belong together. Together. They're related to one another. Don't miss the reality that you actually have siblings in other parts of the world that you have never yet met. That's that's one of the 15 different arguments for, for going to church when you travel. You get to meet brothers and sisters you didn't know you had. But the reality is... Even in this house, even in the house that Jesus is building, sometimes we struggle. What do you tell people who are struggling to believe? What do you tell people who are struggling with their faith and trust in Christ? What do you tell people who are, just aren't sure? Who are just going through one of those seasons where you start to think, is this really worth it? Is this really where I need to focus? Is this really worth my time? Well, it turns out you tell them the same thing you would tell someone who has never believed in Jesus. You tell them, verse 1, consider Jesus. Examine him. See if he is found wanting this, this word consider. Um, it's not, you know, give a brief thought to and then go on about your merry way. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that's probably hurting the church today and and causes increases our fear about the world around us. I think one of the, the struggles that we have um, is that our idea of considering Jesus is we go to church more than we don't. And and OK, well, I've considered Jesus I, most of the time I go to church and that's that's good enough. I thought about him once. I raised my hand once. I prayed a prayer once. I've got my get out of hell free card. I'm sure it's in my wallet somewhere. I can I can show you. And then I've stopped thinking about him. You know, when we were in London, um, uh, we went to the Tower of London to um, and, and you see the the the, the crown jewels. They're in this glass case. you can go by each side. Um, they have a moving sidewalk, because um, otherwise you would stand there forever, right? You would never You talk about a log jam if they didn't force you to move, right? So you can't, unless you want to walk against the sidewalk, that um, you can't just stand there and look at something. You can, however, go back down the other side. Right, So the sidewalk on one side moves in one direction and you get to the end and you can get off and you can go see other stuff. Or you can get back on the sidewalk going back the other way. Which means you actually can make as many laps around these crown jewels as they will let you. The coronation crown, the scepter, the orb. The two largest diamonds in the world are in that case in two different Royal crowns. You, you, can, you can go back down and then go by again and go back down because you're not going to see everything you want to see when you go by the first time. You pretty much have to go back around. I think we made two or three different laps around these jewels so we can get a, a better glimpse, a better look are we more invested in seeing the crown jewels? Will we make multiple laps around a crown that, if we're honest, I'm going to whisper this because this is being recorded, we threw off. Right? You think about it. Americans go and go, okay, do what you will with that. But the thing is, ultimately that crown means nothing to us. It's mere information. And we will go lap after lap after lap around that glass case just to get another look. Are we more invested? Are we more interested in considering the crown that somebody wore 75 years ago and somebody else will presumably wear again in the sometime near future? than we are considering Jesus. Do we give more time and energy to the things of this world than we are in examining Jesus? When you struggle with your faith, look at Jesus. Examine Him. But also consider the fact of why we struggle. What's the, what's the cause of our struggle? What's going on with this Audience here, A.W. Pink in his commentary on Hebrews, points out that, that the recipients of this letter are in danger of trading the future for the present, the invisible for the visible. Isn't that really the heart of our doubts? Isn't that really the the core of our of our mental, emotional, spiritual conflict inside of us? Can I really trust Jesus? When we ask that question, we're letting go the sight of the future for the present. We're letting go our, our awareness of the invisible for the visible. And, and you should all hear Hebrews 11 in your ears, in your mind right now. It's, it's the picture of, Jesus, of, of Peter. Jesus starts walking out to the boat. And the the disciples are on the boat, Jesus is walking on the water, Peter goes, Hey, that's Jesus. And and you know impulsive Jesus, right? I mean Peter. He jumps out of the boat and starts walking and actually walks on water. Until he looks at the water. Until he looks at the waves and begins to sink. That's what causes our conflict. That's what causes our doubt. That's what causes our beginning to sink. We look at the waves. If we want to endure the waves, we consider Jesus. We fix our eyes on him. And yet. There's a conditional word. In chapter six that I assume some of you are uncomfortable with. And verse six, Did I say chapter six, verse six. We are his house. If if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Wait, wait, hold on. Did the writer literally just all of a sudden turn the tables and say, oh wait, never mind, I take it all back. You're not saved by grace. You're saved by being faithful. If you will remain faithful, then you will be saved. Like it's up to you now all of a sudden. Did the writer really just... Somehow change his tune and, and make our salvation about our works and our obedience rather than by grace. I mean, I thought we believed, you know, once saved, always saved. Well, we do believe that. But the, the key word is Saved. Not once prayed a prayer, never ever thought about Jesus again, and but I've got my get out of hell free card. No. Once we're truly saved, then yes, you are absolutely saved. Jesus Himself says that, that once they're in my hand, there's nobody or no thing that can take them out of my hand. Those who are truly trusting in Christ cannot and will not fall away. But how do you know you're trusting in Christ? You think about what's the what's the evidence that I'm trusting in Christ? Today, how would you test that? Well, I mean, I prayed a prayer at youth camp 30 years ago. I, I raised my hand at a revival once and signed a, a pledge card. I bet I can find that pledge card somewhere. It's probably in my house. I bet I know where I can find that. Right. I mean, this says, you know, your faith today by tomorrow. It's actually your tomorrow that that gives you evidence of your faith today your confidence your hope if indeed we hold fast how will you endure trials when we when we look at the trials we lose sight of Jesus and we begin to sink but this passage says if we will consider Jesus if we'll look to him if we'll fix our eyes on him we endure the trials the reality is yes it's true we're saved by grace and once you're in his hand you can't be snatched out but the evidence that you're in his hand is that you hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope Christ is greater than Moses and the house that Jesus has built is greater than the house that Moses built are you in that house are you looking to christ are you considering jesus when you face the trials and struggles and conflicts and doubts of this world will you pray with me Uh, jesus we thank you for your faithfulness to um, accomplish that for which you were sent uh, the mission uh, on which you were apostled, uh, sent to accomplish our salvation. And we thank you that our salvation is all of grace and, and not by our works. Um, but we also thank you that you hold us fast and you you keep us to the end. And so we pray that we would more and more fix our eyes on you, that we would consider you, that we would look to you and that we would endure the trials of this life because our eyes are fixed on You. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.